Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history and the 2023 winner of an award of merit for excellence from the Connecticut League of History Organizations. Brought to you by Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Mary Donahue. Today's episode is hosted by our publisher, Dr. Kathy Hermes, on her exciting new research. I'm your host, Kathy Hermes, the publisher of Connecticut Explored. Our subject today is Connecticut witchcraft, but it's definitely not the same old stories. A lot of people don't know that Connecticut had a long history of witchcraft accusations and trials, longer than that of Massachusetts. In his 1799 History of Connecticut, Benjamin Trumbull said, quote, it may possibly be thought a great neglect or matter of partiality that no account is given of witchcraft in Connecticut. The only reason is that after the most careful researches, no indictment of any person for that crime nor any process relative to that affair can be found. But that just wasn't true. Our first guest today is Beth Caruso, an author and co-founder of the Connecticut Witch Trial Exoneration Project, which sought to clear the names of the criminally accused witches in the 17th century. Hello, Beth, and welcome to Grading the Nutmeg. Hi, Kathy. It's a pleasure to be here. We're also joined by Sarah Morin, the project archivist at Connecticut State Library, who has been digitizing the New Haven County court records from the colonial period. Sarah also has an article in the fall issue of Connecticut Explored. Hi, Sarah, and welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. On May 25th, 2023, 376 years after the first accused witch, Alice Young, was hanged in Connecticut, the Connecticut Senate passed a resolution absolving those accused and convicted of witchcraft in the 1600s. Between 1647 and 1697, 50 years, women and men were criminally accused of witchcraft and the Connecticut colony executed 11 of them. Beth, could you give us a short synopsis of what happened in these 17th century criminal trials? Sure, of course. Um, There was another person who was convicted, but she was reprieved, Elizabeth Seeger, and there were 34 indictments in total. The Connecticut witch trials, they really happened in three phases. The first one was from 1647 to 1654, where the first seven people were accused and then indicted and then convicted and hanged. So seven for seven, it was pretty brutal and pretty deadly. So after 1654, John Winthrop Jr. became involved in the trials as an alchemical physician and an expert witness. He wasn't a governor yet. He was a alchemical physician, though. And overall, he said that people were not witches and phenomena seen were medical or otherwise. And that phase lasted until he had already become governor And he went to get the charter for Connecticut Colony in 1661 and 1662 and 63. That's when the Hartford Witch Panic took place when he was gone. And this was under Major John Mason. During that time, four more people were hanged and many more were indicted until Winthrop came back. Then you see a peaceful period again, starting in 1663. Accusations and trials still happen, but no one hanged ever again. 
And this lasted all the way up until 1697. That's really interesting. There was also kind of an outbreak in Fairfield in 1692, wasn't there? Yes. With the Salem witch trials, things caught on here in Connecticut too, but they didn't reach the level of Salem. And certainly there were no hangings because we had already, in Connecticut, there was already a two-person rule that Winthrop Jr. had implemented as governor. So there were no convictions and no hangings after 1663. And so the two witness rule, can you explain that a little bit? Why is that why is that so important? Well, before that period, a person could go into court and say, "Ah, so and so's specter came to me in the night and I know she is a witch because of that." And that could be used as evidence against someone. So with the two-person rule, two people had to witness the same thing in order for that evidence to be valid. And that didn't happen because, of course, it's spectral evidence. Right. Uh, and Yeah, that's fascinating. Beth, you've written an article in our new fall issue of Connecticut Explored about some recent events. Tell us about the exoneration and what the resolution said and why this is so important for today's listeners to know about. Sure. Well, the resolution had two different parts. The first part of the resolution recognized the injustices of the trial with the specifics. And the second part said what the state of Connecticut was going to do as far as acknowledging the victims. It named the victims, all of those who were convicted and hanged, one who was convicted and reprieved, and then all of the indicted as well. It also apologized to families. Would you like me to read a couple pieces of that to you? That would be great. Okay, sure. This is not the entire thing, but this is this is the tone of it. And might I add, our wonderful host, Dr. Kathy Hermes, wrote most of this resolution. <laughs> I helped a little bit, <laughs> but you but you wrote it, and it's thanks, wonderful. Thanks for the shout out. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas the courts in, in early colonies of Connecticut and New Haven indicted at least 34 women and men for the alleged crime of witchcraft and convicted 12 of them, executing 11, and it is now accepted by the historical profession and society as a whole that all the accused were innocent of such charges, whereas legal procedures differed at the time and many practices of the court would no longer meet modern standards of proof so that the miscarriage of justice was facilitated by such procedures. And the whereas continue on for a little bit. All the people are named and then we get to, I think, since I can't read this whole part, I think this is probably the most important part to descendants. Be it further resolved that the state of Connecticut apologizes to the descendants of all those who were indicted for the crimes of witchcraft and familiarities with the devil convicted and executed for the harm done to the accused person's posterity to present day. 
And that was very important because a lot of these reputations were tarnished for generations and there was real generational trauma. I should point out too that with your writing, a lot of this, it was changed in the house, some of it, but you are a legal scholar during this time and have a JD. So that really meant that there were fewer changes, I think, than normal in the legislature. Thanks. Thanks for reading that. And we'll post the resolution in the show notes so that people can look at it for themselves. So just just real quick, you know, this resolution's come up before in the legislature. What do you think made it different this time that it was able to pass? Well, there were a lot of things. When it first came up in 2008, uh, there was no social media. And so social media really, post after post after post, we were able to reach a lot more people than in 2008. Also in 2008, I think the public at large really didn't know anything about the Connecticut witch trials. There were a few people here and there. There were only a couple books about it. But by the time we went and did this resolution, there were many more books, both fictional and nonfiction. And the third, I think, most important factor is we found a real champion who believed in the resolution and was going to you know, do the hard work behind the scenes to make it happen. And that was Representative Jane Garibay of Windsor. Um, she did a lot of work behind the scenes. And then Senator Saud Anwar joined her in January. Beth, tell us some of the reasons why women in the 17th century were accused. What beliefs did the New England colonists hold about the kind of women who were purported to be witches? Well, first of all, uh, you know, they it was a misogynistic society. They thought women were the weaker sex and more susceptible to demonic forces. A lot of these women, they were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Some of them were women who may have spoke their minds and not have met the ideal Puritan woman, the helpmate, um, may have had some more opinions than her husband. And a lot of these women, not all, but some of them had fewer children or no children, which went against the grain of the be fruitful and multiply, both from a biblical perspective and then also from a political perspective. You know, the English, they wanted to populate. They wanted to, you know, take over with an increased population, both the Dutch and the Native Americans. So it wasn't, they didn't feel like these women would have been helpful if they didn't have a lot of children. Um, some of the other factors might have been, they might have had been convic convicted of a previous crime and that could have applied to men as well. Also, a lot of times we talked about the stain of witchcraft going from generation to generation. There's actually two women who have a generation before them or two generations after them in all three generations, grandmother, mother, and granddaughter who were convicted of witchcraft. And then there's the last thing is really these people could have been an object of jealousy, such as Catherine Harrison. She was a servant and she ascended economically and through marriage, and then her husband died, and she had a lot of wealth. And, you know, a lot of men in her community didn't take that very well. Thanks. Sarah, one of the cases that you digitized in your work in the 
um, New Haven County court records is Gould versus Crittenden. Now, this was a civil court case, not a criminal case. But can you tell us a little bit about what that case was about? So this case involved a woman named Elizabeth Gould. She was an elderly widow somewhere in her late 70s at this time. Uh, she resided in the North Parish of Guilford. And in 1742, she sued Benjamin Chittenden, who was also a member of her community, for slandering her as a witch. So this was a civil case which was a slander case rather than an accusation. And she was the one who was the plaintiff rather than the defendant. And then she sued because she said that Benjamin Chittenden, and I have a couple of quotes from the case, Benjamin said he did believe she was a witch and had reason to believe it because she rode down here, meaning his house, came in, got upon my breast, lay upon me so hard as to make the blood fly out at my mouth and nose. So that's a pretty lurid description of what he allegedly thought. And Gould even offered a motive for him saying this. He said that she was jealous of her happy estate. And she also said the reason she was suing him is because his accusations had brought her into disgrace, contempt, and abhorrence with her neighbors. Now, women in colonial Connecticut, they were dependent on their families, neighbors, and social networks for survival. So to be cut off from them, to have their reputation destroyed and people not wanting to associate them with them, that would threaten their very livelihoods because a woman's livelihood was in the domestic sphere. I am. I just wanted to ask a question here because this is the 18th century. So when she says she's being cut off from her neighbors, does that indicate really there's a widespread belief in this accusation? Uh, it's it's funny because I was going to I was actually going to say that for the background of it, it definitely seems that there was still a common belief in witches among you could say the lay community, the laymen, you know, the regular, the regular Joes of the community. I think what was different here is that the courts were not going to indulge this. Magistrates were not going to indulge this. Clergy wasn't going to indulge this. So it's like, but I don't think beliefs don't just die. I think that people still believed it, but a lot of the power of that, you know, her life would have been in danger legally, maybe not extra legally. She might have been threatened, but legally she was not going to be in danger of being prosecuted because it was the 1740s rather than the 1600s. So the courts weren't not going to indulge regular citizens' fear of witchcraft at this time. However, unfortunately, they did not seem sympathetic to her plight. We don't know why. The court really doesn't explain their decisions. They just say what they think after deliberation in these records. To get a fuller picture, you have to look at other resources like diaries and other extant uh, things of the time. So her plea was ruled insufficient. That meant it didn't meet the burden of proof for slander. And she had asked for 500 pounds in damages, which was quite a lot of money. Slander cases, people who were suing for slander tended 
to ask for a lot. They didn't often get the full amount. Um, but even in this case, she didn't get anything. She was made to pay Chittenden's court costs, as was customary at the time. If you lost, whoever lost the case had to pay the other person's court costs. So, of course, she appealed to the Superior Court. And I'm really excited once we get into the Superior Court records, which should be soon, I'm hoping we find out more about this case and how far her appeal went. Yeah, well, and we'll have to get an update in Connecticut Explored if you find the new... If, if oh, you absolutely. <laughs> Did you know that you could buy a digital-only Connecticut Explored magazine subscription? That's right. For only $22.50 a year, you can enjoy digital access to high-quality versions of our magazines with their photo essays, feature-length stories, beautiful images, and must-see destinations, all on your phone, tablet, or computer. Purchase your digital subscription at ctexplore.org slash subscribe and sign into your account to view the magazines in a full spread, full color digital format or download as a PDF. Interested in reaching an audience of culturally active, lifelong learners? We know just the place. Advertise with Grading the Nutmeg, the award-winning podcast of Connecticut history. Grading the Nutmeg offers a unique platform to showcase your brand to a dedicated and engaged audience of history and culture enthusiasts. It's also budget-friendly. To become a Grading the Nutmeg sponsor, email our ad manager at admanager at ctexplore.org and start advertising with Grading the Nutmeg. You know, Beth described some of the reasons that women were accused of witchcraft in the 17th century. In what way is Elizabeth Gould typical or atypical of people who were accused of witchcraft? Like what attributes did she have that perhaps made her a target? She had unfortunately quite a few. <laughs> and as I was sort of discussing before, the prosecution of witchcraft is a process. I think that in the pop culture mindset, all you had to be like, well, someone flew at me and they sent their specter and it's like maybe during witchcraft panics, but it was a whole process. You had to have multiple factors uh, required. So the belief of the townspeople, the testimony of more than one neighbor and relation, as was discussed earlier, the support of the magistrates or the clergy or both specific mm -hmm. demonstrable harm done to a person in some way by the alleged witchcraft. So and then you had um, women who were more likely to be accused were age 40, unmarried, female heirs of property with no brothers or sons. And as Beth said, personalities define the ideal female archetype of the meek helpmate. Because if they were openly discontent with their lot, if they tried to fight it in any way, and they openly expressed anger, didn't accept their place in the narrowly prescribed social order, they were therefore a threat to it. So Elizabeth Gould, looking at her, she was elderly. She was a widow. Um, she had a very nice inheritance. And she had done alleged harm, according to him. Unfortunately, what the court records they don't tell us is how well did she actually get along with her neighbors? What was her personality? And most importantly, what was the nature of her relationship and her interactions with Benjamin Chittenden up to this point? It would be really interesting to see the dynamics at play that were underpinning this accusation, which we can only speculate without more information from other sources. Yeah. And she was widowed for quite a long time, right? which I think can make a difference too. the, the lack of, as you mentioned, the lack of male protection. Yes. Um, in The Devil in the Shape of a Woman, the historian Carol Carlson 
identifies a statistical correlation between women in the 17th century who were tried for witchcraft and women who owned or inherited property um, when most land was passed down through male heirs. So we've we've talked about this already a little bit, but do we know anything about how extensive Elizabeth Gould's property holdings were? Is this an area that you know we should look into more? Oh, absolutely. I was uh, doing research on this case to write a blog post on it for the Uncovering New Haven blog, and there were some lovely individuals that contributed quite a bit to find a grave. So I found uh, I found a jackpot there. Um, and according to the research that was contributed to find a grave under Benjamin Gould, I mean, yeah, Benjamin Gould, her husband, so many repeat names because we got Benjamin, yeah. Benjamin. <laughs> so Benjamin Gould, so like Benjamin Gould appeared to have died in 1718. So we're looking at quite a long time where she was a widow. She never remarried, or at least as far as we could say without further research. And it seems like her late husband's will offered a huge economic disincentive. Now, the legal minimum inheritance for women at that time was the use of, not the ownership of, but the use of one third of marital property. And this was called dower or widow's thirds. And this comes from English common law that was continued in the colonies. So according to this research, Benjamin had made his wife, Elizabeth, the sole executrix and he willed to her all his real and personal property of whatever kind, land, buildings, household goods, chattel, cattle, movables, immovables. But if she died before him, which obviously she didn't, if she remarried or she died as his widow, all that property was going to be willed to her, to their four youngest children, which I'm not sure if she was a mother of them or not. Um, but he had three sons and one daughter, and it would be equally divided between him. So I could definitely see another member of the community being really jealous over her, quote, happy estate. And yeah. there is another factor I wanted to mention along with that. The 1740s, it seems awfully late for witchcraft. But there was religious tension in Connecticut during this decade because there was a great awakening going on, a religious revival happening in the colonies. And this, I think, definitely contributed to the atmosphere of fear and division that would lead to these kinds of witchcraft accusations even well after Salem. I'm really glad you brought that up. I think that is an important factor. And a lot of people, of course, because most people study the 17th century and we haven't had 18th century witchcraft accusations brought to the fore, we don't think of perhaps what the Great Awakening was generating in that regard. Oh, yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah, that's another line of pursuit for some graduate students. Yep. The, the 18th century is chock full of very interesting things because it was such a transitional era. You really see like you still see the Puritan mindset in the early, especially in the legal thinking. And you see it transition to what we would call a more modern mindset, um, industrial age mindset. So it's really a watershed. And then, of course, you have the American Revolution. So you really see the transition in thought over the century through legal cases. It's fascinating. Sarah, as an archivist and Beth, as a historical novelist and researcher, I would like to ask you about another article in Connecticut, Connecticut Explored, the one that I wrote. <laughs> about a teenage girl, Susanna Howard, who made an accusation against Dr. Alexander Williamson, a physician who was treating Susanna's father, Samuel Howard. Williamson treated Samuel for eight months with various treatments. And I remember reading those documents and thinking, poor Samuel Howard, <laughs> you know, when he wasn't purging, <laughs> he was getting constipated. And it was just a, a terrible, terrible cycle. 
when Samuel Howard didn't pay the doctor, Williamson sued him. And that's when Susanna made her statement to the court. And here's a brief excerpt. Sometime in the last summer past, I heard Dr. Williamson say that at my father's house, that he could charm a snake to death in speaking a few words. Susanna testified, and further he said that in England, in a by place, there was a circle, and he went into it, and he had a book that he read in. And after he had read a while, he raised the devil, and the devil strove with him for the book, and he held it fast under his arm, and after that, he opened the book and read. And there's a lot more about how he could raise the spirits, how he could bewitch a witch. What are your thoughts about this accusation from 1715-16? Again, in a civil case, no criminal case was instituted after she gave this testimony. But what comes to mind when you see this happening? And I'll start with Sarah and then go to Beth. I'm thinking about the case, and um, I often like to think about what are the underlying social dynamics and what are the underlying uh, power relationships and the position people have in society. Puritans were all about hierarchy and order. It was one of their most cherished values. So here we have a girl. She's a minor, a female child. She's accusing an adult, a physician, a male, who, as when we had talked earlier about this, who I understand, and please correct me if I'm inaccurate, was a newcomer to town, but he had powerful friends. And her father was in debt to him. So there's some really interesting dynamics here. So I think looking at those factors, she doesn't come out on top here. Um, and we're not in a panic or a situation where the normal rules are upended and pretty much anything goes and anyone is accused. And I think another thing is this happened after Salem. So you would be far less likely to have the buy-in of the social elites like magistrates or clergy for this to go somewhere. And kind of reading the tenor, I could see it being really easily dismissed as, oh, he was just pulling your leg, <laughs> you know, like, oh yeah, I have this book. So I can kind of see it going that way. And that's just from my limited knowledge and what I would speculate. So I'm sure Beth will have a lot more to say <laughs> that she'll be able to add. <laughs> Well, I'm struck that the accuser is very similar to the 17th century accusers, tween or teenage girls. And as we found out with Salem later on, reasons could have underlying reasons could have been economic, but the accused in this situation is completely different. It's a powerful male, and it, it sounds like he had made some boasts about being powerful in certain ways, if I'm understanding correctly. And so was not fearful of being prosecuted to boast like that. Women in the, by and large, the women who were accused in the 17th century, they, for the most part, were not boasting because it meant their life. An accusation could very well mean their death along the road. I think it's so interesting that he is, so, I mean, you have to believe that he said something like this, even if she doesn't have the exact words, that there's some kernel of truth to what she's reporting here, at least, or it seems to me. And yes, the boasting was really striking. He was not afraid at all. I would say in modern par parlance, he was flexing. <laughs> <laughs> and And she did have two other girls with her. She was the only one old enough to testify in court, but there were two other girls who witnessed this and 
were with her when she gave her testimony that was written down by the clerk of the court. So it is a kind of, you're exactly right, the tween girls, the teenage girls, um, it comes from a very traditional kind of accuser. There's so much interest in the history of witchcraft today. And I'll ask you both, why does it still have such a hold on us? Why do you think it's still so relevant? Well, I, I think it's relevant because we're looking at human behavior that never seems to go away in some form or another. Today, we have social media where people, there are witch hunts against people on social media. They might not have all the facts, but then they're so eager to vilify someone they don't know. Um, the And the other really striking part of this, and it's hard for people to believe, is that there are more witch hunts currently happening in our world than happened in colonial times. It's a real human rights issue and problem in the world in over 60 countries between 2009 and 2019. So a 10-year period in a UN report, it says that 20,000 people were accused of witchcraft, died for it, um, and this is mostly through vigilante type of actions, and then, or were ostracized, such as in being placed into a witch community, or, uh, you know, just isolated. Mm -hmm. So it is, it is pertinent. Sarah, do you want to add anything to that? Oh, yeah, yes, absolutely. Um, I'd like to build on what Beth mentioned inside we tend to focus on the subjects that most resonate with us personally and as a culture and there's a great great quote that i frequently go back to and it's attributed to mark twain um, history doesn't repeat itself but it often rhymes so the puritans they may be long gone but we still haven't entirely shed some of their values uh we as a culture are still fighting on many fronts battles over hierarchy and order for example, we're still grappling with the concept of how much autonomy is it right for a woman to have. Now, witches are such a fascinating concept because they're about women taking power into their own hands without the permission or supervision of men. And some people in our culture, we embrace this concept. It offers freedom because it, from an impressive hierarchy. But there are other people in our culture they're frightened because when historically marginalized groups, and I also see this with people of color, with women, with LGBTQ, as these groups gain more economic power or personal freedom, there are some who see this as a threat to their own position and privilege. And trends might wax and wane. So maybe next Halloween, we'll be talking about zombies uh, or something, <laughs> because there's a lot of great symbolism there about dehumanization. But I think it's my suspicion that we're going to continue to be fascinated with witches on some level until we resolve our issues with hierarchy, power, and human rights in our culture. Thank you both so much for being here today. Unfortunately, we have to stop with our podcast, but I invite people to go read the articles in the fall issue of Connecticut Explored, three articles, all involving cases of witchcraft or the exoneration. and keep doing research, you know, keep digging in the archives. I think we're going to find more documents like the Susanna Howard testimony, like the Elizabeth Gould case, as we start digitizing more and more court records. And um, thank you both for your work on this very important subject. Thanks for being here today. Thank you, Kathy. Yes, thank you.
I want to thank our guests today, Beth Caruso and Sarah Morin. Beth Caruso is a Windsor author who writes historical novels, including her novel, One of Windsor, about Alice Young. She's also published original research about the Connecticut witch trials. Sarah Morin is a project archivist at the Connecticut State Library. She has processed institutional and manuscript collections at the Connecticut State Library, the University of Connecticut, and two historical societies in Massachusetts. She enjoys writing, collecting shells, and participating in her local community theater. I am Kathy Hermes, publisher of Connecticut Explored. Beth Caruso and I are also the authors of Between God and Satan, Thomas Thornton, Witch Hunting, and Religious Mission in the English Atlantic World, 1647 to 1693, published in Connecticut History Review in the fall of 2022. Fresh episodes of Grading the Nutmeg are brought to you every two weeks with your support. You can help us continue to produce the podcast by donating directly to Grading the Nutmeg on the Connecticut Explored website at ctexplore.org. Click the Donate button at the top, then look for the Grading the Nutmeg donation link at the bottom. Donations in any amount are greatly appreciated. Thank you so much. This episode of Grading the Nutmeg was engineered by Patrick O'Sullivan at highwattagemedia.com. This is Mary Donahue. Join us in two weeks for our next episode of Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history. Thank you.